Okay, so this passage is pretty complicated. I'm gonna read it for us so you get the full picture and then we're gonna walk through it. So if you feel lost within the first sentence, it's okay. Just kind of keep rolling with it to the best you can and then we'll backtrack and go through it all together. But I want you to see it all in one chunk at first. It starts off this way, Daniel 9. Oh, oh, before I read it too, remember this is on the heels of, or, or after, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but it's after Daniel has just been praying and fasting and seeking the Lord and begging him that, that the fulfillment of uh, his promise that his people would leave the exile, they were in exile under Babylon, and now Persia's taken over Babylon. So he's like, well, when will we get to go back to Jerusalem? When will we get to worship in the temple? When, when will our city be there? You're like, will your name be praised once again? So he's, he's praying about this. The angel Gabriel shows up and gives the answer. Now what we read is, it's not just an answer for when they go back, but now there's more things. And it's, it's beyond what Daniel was praying, and it's all good. And we get to read this. Some of this is historic, and some of this has yet to happen, potentially. So Daniel 9 says this, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Remember, this is, this is Gabriel talking with. To finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, that's the prophecy we have. Anyone want to stand up and tell us what you read? Might go around. This is a complicated text. But what we see, again, as I was just saying a moment ago, Daniel is praying about when will Jerusalem, when do we get to go back, when do we get to rebuild? It's been like decimated. And the angel's telling him, oh, this will happen. But then it happened, and then, then there's more. Oh, but then there's an anointed one. He's going to get cut off. Oh, and then this, the city is going to be destroyed again. Daniel's thinking it just was. It's going to be rebuilt and then destroyed again. And then something involving desolations. But that last phrase tells us, until the decree is going to be poured out on the desolator. So Daniel gets this picture. He preserves it here, writes it down, and that's what we have for us today. So let's begin back at verse 24 to talk through what we're reading here. It starts off talking about 70 weeks. This is the total time frame that we're going to look at and Within these 70 weeks period, the angel mentions three different eras. There's one of, made up of seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then one week. You know, if you add up seven, 62, and one, you get 70. So these 70 weeks are the period and the time frame we're looking at. And it starts off mentioning that when, um, it says, these 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, 
And then the angel mentions six different descriptions of what will happen. I wanna talk through each of these because they are so good in their own way. It says to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin. You know, those two are very similar. Both of these affirm that the world's sin against God did not stop with Jesus' crucifixion or his resurrection. It continued. People kept sinning. You and I keep sinning, even though Jesus already died on the cross for our sin. But one day, it will stop. One day, it will have an end put to it. So that immediately should tell us, like, this sounds like he's talking about something in the future, not just something that happened with Jesus. It continues, to atone for iniquity. Okay, well, like, atoning for iniquity, this was a concept in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system. They would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat within the temple. Okay, like, and that would atone for their sin. Uh, and then ultimately, Jesus atoned for sin. He died on the cross, and his blood was poured out on behalf of mankind because he was the perfect lamb. So there's that correlation there. And it continues just describing or reminding us that the rights and the privileges and the blessings of Jesus' future kingdom are made possible to those who believe in what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. So that, like, atonement, again, maybe it, maybe it talks about the past, but I would say, again, we're looking at a whole package here of what's in the future, this general, complete, final atonement for sin. Sin will be no more. Transgression will be no more. And that's affirmed by even the next phrase here. And that's what catches my attention the most, to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's like, oh, okay, well, when we talk about, start talking about everlasting and that which is righteousness for everlasting, now we're talking about a time period here in which King Jesus returns and his people will be permanently residing with him. There will be this everlasting state, and we compare that again against Revelation, right? We don't read Daniel in isolation. We read this also with other texts, such as Revelation at the very end. It talks about the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And so, okay, so what we're reading, these different descriptors are sounding like the future here, and then these last two phrases add to that too. It says, to seal both vision and prophet. And this is simply telling Daniel that this vision is sealed up for a later time. It has been authentic, it's authenticated by God himself, kind of like an ancient letter sealed with a wax seal, right, stamped well. This has been sealed for that for a future time. And it is to, and lastly, to anoint a most holy place. And this could naturally refer to a literal future temple when Jesus returns, not for sacrifices since Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. No more sacrifices are needed. But in fulfillment of what Ezekiel the prophet says in chapters 40 to 48. So all these different descriptors right here, like this is Gabriel's opening statement. It's a lot of different uh, words, but if you were to put this at the, uh, this will sound weird when I say it, but if you were to take that same verse and put it at the end of the whole 70 weeks dynamic, it might fit your minds a little more because it does for me. And that is appropriate with this because it is apocryphal, or not apocryphal, it's, it's apocalyptic literature. It's, it's um, there's a little, not everything is super chronological. So for instance, Gabriel gives this to Daniel and the opening scene is the end. And then it backtracks. Okay, now let's talk about this first period of time. And he mentions the seven weeks. So, before I mention, we talk about these seven weeks and, and the different weeks, let me give this quick summary from Stephen Miller. He's a theologian. And this framework that he gives, we have it on the screen. I'm gonna read this for us. It serves kind of like a pair of glasses, like you put them on and it'll help you 
to work through this. And I think this gives a good foundation. Even if you were to uh, read somebody else who will come back at this with another angle, this gives a good framework as a working baseline. So he says this, the passage predicts the coming of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Messiah will die, and subsequently the city of Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. At the end of the age, an evil ruler will arise who will persecute God's people, but his wicked activities will not continue. For the same Messiah who died will come again. He will judge the Antichrist and all those who follow him. Then the period characterized by the great accomplishments set for in verse 24 will ensue. Those are the ones we just read, those six descriptors. And lastly, Stephen Miller says, although this message was first given to the Jewish faithful, all believers will participate in the kingdom of God. Okay, so the, I, I hope you kind of have a, sort of a, a working like big picture here. Now we're gonna zoom in on these different time frames. Again, seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week. Gabriel gives these um, markers. The question is, what is it? So let's talk through this. It says this in verse 25. Let's reread this together. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Or some of your, your Bibles, how many of you, it says say seven sevens if you're reading in your own Bible. Yeah, some of you. So that's a great way to put it because that's the literal language there, seven sevens. And let's get this out of the way at the front end. When it comes to language that is uh, apocalyptic literature, some things are literal and some things are symbolic and you have to know what is what. And that can be a challenge at times. Almost everyone across the board agrees, despite the other discrepancies, that weeks is not a literal week or the sevens is not a literal seven or a day, um, but it is years. It's a period of time. We're not told the the, the unit of measurement here, uh, such as a period of time or a month or whatever, but the idea of seven sevens is consistently described by theologians who are conservative as well as those who are progressive, that this is a period of time of like seven. So just to help you, here, here we're gonna do some math, a little multiplication. You have seven weeks, this first period of time, would be 49 years, right? So seven times seven, the seven years, 49 years would be the total. So seven weeks is 49 years, 62 weeks is 434 years, and then one week is seven years. Again, seven, 62, and one, these are the marks that the angel gives, and in the languages, 77s is the total time frame here, or 490 years is the, is the bulk. So, the question that we begin to work with now that we have that, I'll say settled because it's that understood or accepted that people actually have the burden of proof on them to show why it's not years. Uh, if they disagree, it's just that, that's that well accepted. In light of that, verse 25 mentions that this is gonna happen, that there's gonna be this word sent out and then Jerusalem will be built. And after that, you know, there's this period of seven, like, or seven sevens. When does this happen? Well, when I read about this sort of a moment of a word going out and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, there are three different moments in Scripture where something like this happens, and that should catch our attention. Two are recorded in the book of Ezra, and one is recorded in the book of Nehemiah. To make it sound even more confusing, 
One of those in Ezra is by the king Cyrus. And then the other two that I just mentioned, they are by the same king, Artaxerxes. And each of these moments, regardless of which one you pick, it kind of leads you in this time frame. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through this a moment. So Ezra 1 records one of these instances like this. We don't have it on the screen, and it doesn't really matter. I just want you to hear the language of how the Lord stirs within this pagan God to move in this certain way. He says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. That command happened in 538 BC, which is 49 years after Jeremiah foretold that the city would be rebuilt, or seven sevens. So for a lot of folks, they read this and they think, well, there we have it. I mean, we have it right here. It's, this, this is super obvious. Now, there's two other views that would come later under Artaxerxes' reign. And one is in, recorded in Ezra 7. Artaxerxes tells Ezra that they can go practice uh, what they want to do there in Jerusalem. And then the other one is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, where Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah, you can go back and build the wall. All three of those have their merit in one way or another. What I want to highlight for you is the most important, regardless of the timing, and it's this. Daniel's hearing this, and he's being assured that the rebuilding of Jerusalem would occur. Because again, he's in exile in this moment. He just saw his nation totally destroyed. And he's like wondering, God, are you going to be true to your promise here? And the angel says, yes, this will happen. This will happen. And it demonstrates that God is faithful to his covenant promises and that the discipline of the exile would finish and God would restore his people. That alone, like if the, if the vision stopped here, this is a hallelujah moment. Now, the thing is, it, it does continue. And we read about another future destruction and other things. So we just kind of keep rolling with it, right? So the rest of uh, verse 25 says this. Then for 62 weeks, or 62 sevens, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. In other words, over the next 434 years, the rebuilding of Jerusalem will be taking place. There'll be like a lot of strengthening. The city will be... Um, functioning, but it will be under duress. There will be trouble, uh, as opposed to maybe like under the reign of King David, where the promise was, yeah, David, you're gonna be king and you're gonna clean house. Like, go have fun just taking care of business in the name of God and establishing your nation. For this group, it's, it's not that strong in light of the fact that it will be in a troubled time. So we have that chunk of time. The question for a lot of folks is they're not sure when exactly that begins with which edict I mentioned with the different kings, Cyrus or the two from Artaxerxes. But nonetheless, we keep working through this text. Daniel's told that this period will eventually end and it will be horrific when it does. So verse 26 says, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So after 434 years, the anointed one, whoever this is, is cut off, and destruction occurs. Now this is likely two, one of two moments in history. A lot of people would agree that the, 
it's kind of one of these, maybe you're thinking of different people you have read over the years or heard preach on this. They probably land in one of these two things that you've heard. If the timeline is closer to that edict by Cyrus, the first one I mentioned, the cutoff anointed one would be the high priest at the time. And the destruction would refer to Antiochus IV. He's the one I mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about Antiochus, the one who came in and he killed a bunch of Jews and then he defiled the temple by erecting that uh, statue to Zeus and then sacrificing pigs like right there in the temple and how that's a defilement. And there's also a a picture and a portrait of the, the future Antichrist that would come. So we talked about this and I believe it was Daniel 7. Now, that's, that's one take, and in many ways, that's a really good take. The only challenge or pushback on that, the biggest challenge is that Antiochus didn't destroy the city or the temple. So yeah, he wreaked havoc, and yes, he's a picture of the future Antichrist, but he didn't do the full explanation here. The next option is this, that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the preeminent and true anointed one. And we do know he was cut off when he was killed on the cross. His blood poured out on our behalf. And so we understand that dynamic. We also see that the Roman general Titus, he, he came into town around AD 70, and he destroyed the city. Not only did he set up false god in the temple and other stuff, he actually did demolish the city the way that this is reading. So in that regard, it, uh, it sounds... Um, it sounds better. In addition, to some degree, it also fits a certain timeline that is more literal. So for those who are interpreting this more symbolic, they are more prone to go with Cyrus and, uh, and his edict because there's a bigger time frame there. For those who are reading it more literally, they might find themselves landing on Artaxerxes a little more and I would find, uh, yeah, the this, this second option. And I would find myself, um, I, I see some, some really good defense toward that route. And one thing that catches my attention is just the math behind it. I'm, I'm a little careful whenever, whenever math is like, hey, if you turn the Bible upside down and if you put it in a blender, then you have this outcome. And that can happen for some people when they talk about stuff, especially if they're on TikTok. They're not exactly the deepest theologians on that channel. <laughs> but in this case, there actually tends to be some really good matchup with this time frame if you take the first seven sevens and then the next 62 sevens, that's 69 sevens, 483 years. And this period between Artaxerxes' edict that's recorded in Ezra chapter seven occurs in 458 BC. And if you fast forward 483 years later, you get about 26, 27 AD. And that's when Jesus begins his ministry, most most likely with a lot of, yeah, I I land on that. And that catches my attention. Well, that's interesting math, that if you just add it together, that it's similar. Now, again, depending on how you look at certain things, it doesn't necessarily, there there is legitimate pushback, but I love that Jesus's first year of ministry and his baptism occurs around the time frame that if you take this, uh, edict, it would, it would be there. The, the biggest, just if you're taking notes or curious, the biggest pushback on why that view is not the resounding one, it's because Artaxerxes' edict to Ezra, as recorded in Ezra 7, it doesn't say to go back and build Jerusalem. It, Cyrus's does, but then Cyrus's timeline doesn't really match. 
regardless of either view or um, third door that you, got, you might come across, Daniel was given an explanation that the city would be rebuilt. And then he's also told, uh, but it's also going to be destroyed again. And the anointed one will be cut off. Now, that sounds really bad, but it actually gets worse. So the next verse, the last one here, verse 27, takes us to um, the rest of this. So it says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The he is talking about that prince of the people who destroyed the city. So he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week or one sevens. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, so in this section, we see that there's a few different Attributes. So first of all, we read of one week or one set uh, or, or yeah, one week. So it's going to be seven years. This period involves a covenant or a strong agreement or language that we use in geopolitics is a treaty. So there's that dynamic. We also read of half of the week. This would also be 3.5 years or 42 months. And I say those numbers for a reason or a time and times and half a time. Same sort of language there, and that period involves the end of sacrifices. And then we also read of a desolator, but the decree is poured out on the desolator at the very end. So on its own, verse 27 is pretty confusing. But when you read verse 27 in light of other passages in Scripture, you start to see a common thread because they start using the same time frame. And this is one reason why the time frame, uh, I would argue, is literal, because you have... It's said several different ways. 42 months, three and a half years, half a week, uh, time, time, half times. Those kinds of phrases, you're like, well, they're all talking about the same thing, but they're putting it differently to say that it's just this general period, I think is too broad for a consistent hermeneutic. And also, uh, to, to help you see how this is explained, in a few different passages, Revelation chapters 11, 12, and 13, they all mention a period of the same time. They might say 42 months or a time and time and half a time, times half a time. And it's this time when there is destruction and desolation. And I don't think that's a numerical coincidence. So I want to read for you an example, Revelation 13. But again, we see it in chapters 11 and 12. Revelation 13, when talking about the beast, it says at the beginning, I think it's verse 5, I don't have it here, but it says the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, or three and a half years, or half of a week, right? Half of a seven-year period. So I share all this because if you're familiar with this kind of language, or if you've read stuff about end times or heard stuff, preachers talk about stuff, and wondering why seven, why three and a half years? How does this relate to a tribulation? the correlation is deeply entrenched with this passage because of Daniel's language here. And this pairs with what Jesus said in Matthew 24. I read some of this a couple weeks ago, but I wanna read some selections from it as well as more that I didn't read. I didn't put it on the screen, but in Matthew 24, as well as the end of Luke and the end of Mark, Jesus gives an explanation of what happens at the end time. And it, 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 uh, it, there's overlap and there's consistencies with what we read here in Daniel, as well as much of what we read in the book of Revelation. 
So Jesus says this in Matthew 24, starting in verse 15, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, oh, hey, we just read about that, right? That's one of the examples in Daniel. There's more after this. But he says, when you see that, and when you see that abomination of desolation uh, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he begins to, and then Jesus gives all these explanations of like the response and how bad it will be. That's why in verse 21, he says, for then there will be a great, or there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus is describing in this moment a lot of the chaos that will be at the end of times. Most people tie these statements into this 70th week. In addition to what Jesus said there, if you skip down to verse 29, in his same explanation, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will, will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heavens with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. If for some reason you did, I didn't say this, so if you didn't catch the connection here, you have Daniel's describing, this last verse is describing how there's a desolator, there's the abominations, it's just, it's awful, it's bad, and then a decree will be poured out on him and he will be terminated. Well, Jesus is using language very similar where he's describing this great tribulation and there will be nothing, there was nothing like it before and nothing like it in the future. So that's why there's a, there's a connection there and then the language also connects with what Revelation says in a few different sections. In addition to just that language, which I think pairs really well, you have the constant theme of seven. So if you thought math was over, it's not, but it's almost over. So you have this theme of seven years. And the working theory connects this whole period of time that this 70th seven is the tribulation period. And to help you just kind of get a full glimpse of where I'm going, and there is some debate on this, but again, this is a good framework. Like, if, if you're gonna talk about this, let's understand this. And then if you wanna look at some of the other fringe dynamics, sure. But this is, this is a good beginning point. And that'd be that the, <clears throat> the, within this seven-year period, the first three and a half years, there's this functioning treaty or covenant that occurs between this prince of the people and some people say, if that people is the Roman Empire that's raised up again, then it'd be like something like that. And that's another tie to why this is the Antichrist. But that's a, that's a bigger barrel than I want to get into right now. So you have just this moment, three and a half years, a treaty of some sort. And I've read many who have said that this is a treaty with Israel. Although I, I don't feel, and I've really studied on it a lot, I still don't feel totally uh, competent in that portion of the discussion to have an opinion on it, but I just wanted you to know that's where some of that's coming from. So three and a half years, uh, or a treaty with Israel for seven years. The first three and a half years, there's this agreement. People are like, hey, this is great. This is wonderful. Look at this covenant. And then the second three and a half years is what's described as the great tribulation. So you'd have the Antichrist breaking the treaty, committing 
great evil, forcing humans to worship him and then making war on the saints. We see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We see this in Revelation 13 and then chapters 14 to 17. A lot of it. And then Christ returns. This will be a terrible and horrifying period in world history. It's one that we get glimpses of, we get tastes of when you study history and you see Antiochus IV and what he did in the temple with what Titus did when he destroyed Jerusalem, with what modern um, evil dictators have done, whether Hitler or others. You get moments of this to see how these people have reacted and responded in like, you know, global events. But none of them uh, are as bad as it will be, all right? I want to get, I didn't do this in the first service, but I just, I can't not read this. Uh, we have a little, a little extra time. Second Thessalonians 2 describes some of these events. And I love how Daniel mentions how and this, is, this guy's going to wreak havoc until the decree is poured, on, poured out on him. Well, another way that phrase is described is how Paul words it, but it's at the end of what I want to read. So just listen to this, or you can read along. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the Lord or that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I'll pause here real quick to say, uh, that's something Antiochus did. That's one reason people were like, hey, listen, Antiochus is the fulfillment of much of this from Daniel. And there is much of the second half of Daniel that's referring to that guy that he did all that from 171 to 164 BC. Like, I get it. If you were alive at the time, you'd be thinking, oh, this is the guy. But actually, let me just even skip on one. That's one thought. Another thought with this was with Titus, when he takes out Jerusalem, especially after Jesus was just killed 40 years before. Some people saw Jesus and still engaged and were alive during the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So they're like, this is the guy. This is the guy Jesus is talking about. Well, that would be true if Jesus returned, but he didn't. And that's what puts us in this unique period of time for the next, you know, what, what 1,900 years or so. So I'm gonna keep reading those. 2 Thessalonians, verse six says, and you know or wait, verse five. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you about these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then verse eight, this is the last one. This is the phrasing that, that parallels this idea of the decree poured out on the desolator. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's awesome. That's just great. It's a throwdown kind of final victory statement. And that reminds us that the kingdom of God does not end when the desolator arrives. It may appear that way for those who are on earth. You say, what is happening? But let's remember the kingdom of God 
does not end and did not take God by surprise. Jesus will return. He will bind and destroy evil. And then the new heaven and earth and Jerusalem will be established. So what difference does that make for us today? Right? That is, friends, how I would interpret this passage and at least to give you a good foundation. And there are a couple different ways to take it, particularly depending on how symbolic you might go or how literal you may go. But again, Scripture isn't super loosey-goosey where everything's symbolic. There has to be some sort of literal handles to work on. And I would submit to you several literal ones in light of the, the language and the numbers being so precise in certain ways. That's not just, you can't just say everything's this period, like a middle-sized period of seven years, 49 years, a really big period, 400-something years, and a little smaller period, seven years, like, like, or seven sevens. It's to have specific numbers, I think, is a legitimate take. So with all that said, though, what difference does this make for us today? Well, I've, I've got three things for you here as we wrap up. First of all, this text shows us that God knows the timeline to global events, and we do not. And so, yes, Israel was a, uh, established as a nation in 1948, like reformed, and that caught the attention of a lot of theologians and a lot of Christians. After nearly 1,900 years, the nation was back on the map in a unique way. And it might pique our curiosity if you read about certain treaties made with that nation or if you see things that appear to be some sort of rising of an empire in a certain way. However, let us be careful to give, I'll say, to steward our limited time and energy that the Lord gives us to piece together something that Jesus himself said he doesn't even know the timing and the, and the, the outcome of, or not, but the timing of. Only the Father knows the time that all this will occur and when his son will return. So we get glimpses of it and we can talk through it. But one thing I've learned since even seminary years ago is Global events change rapidly. And so things that sell really good now, you should see what came out 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. And in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a lot was written about this. And now you'd read it and you'd be like, this, this is like none of these events, these countries aren't even countries anymore. And like, you just look at it. So you have to be careful with all the global events. So let's remind ourselves, Jesus instructs us to give our best focus and our best energy on what we do know. Let's love one another. Let's make disciples of all nations. Let's worship God in spirit and truth. Not uh, be, I don't, I, everyone has their different things. So I'm not at all like uh, shaming or dismissing curiosity. What I'm saying is just be careful to make your entire life, I mean just your, everything about what we might not know. And, and I'm looking at it through the lens of like, I got like little kids in my home right now and like, if I'm only reading on something that might change by tomorrow, and then I neglect time with them, that, for me, feels not stewarding that time well. Some of you might not be in that situation. So I am, like, I recognize just the time and lim limited time and what you should give time to. So there's that dynamic. Secondly, Daniel would have felt comfort knowing that God kept his covenant promise to his people, knowing that Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Oh, what a great, oh, thanks, Lord. I prayed about that. I was wondering if you're gonna do that. And the angel's telling me it's gonna happen. That, that, that'll be a comfort to uh, the people. I'm gonna share that with them. Well, 
In the same way, we can feel comfort and hope and security knowing that God will keep his covenant with us as believers under Jesus Christ's covenant. This is the new covenant. This is all throughout scripture in the New Testament here. This will be most displayed at Christ's return and his termination of sin and his establishment of his everlasting kingdom. And so we get to be a part of that. He is the same God today as he was in Bible times. And so I urge you to saturate your heart in his character and in how he moves and how he worked in scripture, how he moved in the past, because you read all this and you can remind yourself then when you are in a chaotic situation from something very personal and, and you know just a, a great distress of the moment to something broader like to the nation or the world, you can remind yourself of who God is in those moments but you don't really remember who God is in those moments of chaos unless you've done the hard work and the preparation of reading the Bible every day, studying this, and remembering who our Savior is, who our God is. So that's the second. And thirdly, my question for you is, do you belong to God's kingdom? Because we're reading here all about the end times on this, how things will play out in a certain way with a certain, certain timeline. And there are those who will belong to God's kingdom, and then there are those who do not. And if you do not, you, you, you will be separated from God forever and cast into the lake of fire. And if you do belong to God's kingdom, you will reign with him forever, reside with him, be in the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. It would be wonderful. And there is a great contrast of those two outcomes. And it's something that we all need to personally evaluate. Have we allowed the atonement of Christ to clothe ourselves when we stand before God Almighty? If not, you're standing on your own merit. Ain't gonna work. But if you allow his merit to cover you, then you will be saved and you will be adopted in his family. That is your new identity. And you reign with him, live with him, reside with him and all other saints forever. So those are those, those three different takeaways that are uh, that stand out to us. So Maddie, you and the team, you guys coming up here ladies, in this final song. And this whole, this whole chapter of uh, uh, the end here of Daniel is, is quite the doozy when it comes to certain interpretive matters. But what I love is just in a few simple verses, you get this glimpse into God's, God's view on history and global events. And uh, if you have questions, I'd love to talk with you on that. How about that? If there's something that keeps you up late at night, shoot me a text. I'll probably give a, a lame answer for what you're looking for, but I'm happy to talk through it if you'd like. Uh, let me pray for